You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, y'all could be seated. What's up, Refuge fam? How are you? Great. I heard one great. That was audible, and I like that. Uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, you're catching Josh on uh, what he looks like on uh, end of the week where uh, laundry is running low and kids' sickness is running high. And, uh, you know, sometimes you got to throw on a jacket and be like, you know, I think we're going to be all right today. Uh, the hair's a mess. But I hope you can recognize, uh, uh, what does it relate to me today? Uh, as we come together without any real concern about how you're dressed, without any real concern about what you look like or, or how the ride over here was, because we're here today uh, in order to worship the Lord. And we're going to be moving into our time uh, worshiping the Lord through uh, the word. And so I'm pretty sure everybody in here knows me or you've met me today or I've introduced myself. But if you're joining us online, you don't know me. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and today... So I'm just really excited to jump into the word with you. I have some exciting news, but I also have some sad news today, okay? Uh, it's not like anybody passed away or anything like that. I said that with a little bit too much aggression, I feel like. Uh, but today, we are going to be continuing, uh, but also finishing our series, finishing for the time, our series on justice, okay? Now, hear me. I know that we talked about this a few weeks ago and how we're going to be pushing through a lot of different topics, uh, but when I say finishing, I just mean pausing. Okay, pausing uh, for the next few weeks, um, but returning uh, later on this year, maybe a little bit early next year, uh, but pausing right now. And you may be asking why, right? You may be asking why after we kind of made a good plea to you of like, we're going to be doing this uh, and getting all excited about it. And in short, uh, it's because we planned the entirety of our preaching calendar in October of last year. Okay, everybody was like, okay. So what that means, <laughs> what that means uh, is we thought in October this would be a great time to revisit this topic of justice a year after so many conversations about justice had, had come up uh, really to wake us up uh, from really assuredly us falling asleep toward the subject again after 12 months passing by. And while we still desire to do that, and while we still want to draw attention to that, last year in October, we had really no ability, okay, to kind of predict uh, that we would be in an entirely different cultural moment right now. Uh, you may be asking what that cultural moment is, and it's so subtle that you may not even notice that you're in it. Uh, that moment is that we are uh, slowly coming to the end of this, like, pandemic season. I want you to take a second. <laughs> I know, right? We're like, oh, thank God. Um, I want you to just look around for a second. Right? There are people in church all sitting together, and, like, three-quarters of them don't have a mask on, right? Like, this, there's this slow emergence out of the cave we've been living in for nearly uh, a year and a half, uh, and we had no ability in October of last year to really be able to understand that and to be able to predict that, right? It's a dynamic time. Yet we are in the midst of it happening. So people are getting out. Society and culture is like offering us stuff right there, like inviting us to be like, hey, come check out this. Come check out that. Come come be here without a mask, with a mask. I don't care. Just come spend your money, right? That's kind of what's going on right now. And, and I'm just as excited as you. I want to give a woo along with Jenna today about the fact that you can feel this slow sense of like, hey, like things are getting back to normal, Right, excited to be getting uh, rhythms back that we maybe hadn't had in the past, uh, or we kind of had not had to put a, put a pause on over the last year and a half. 
Um, and hear me, I'm excited about that. But if we're not careful and we jump back into rhythm socially, professionally, with our family and forget that there are also rhythms as God's people that we're called to live out. Right. Rhythms that soothe our soul and that bring healing, that draw us closer to God and help us expand the God. I mean, God's kingdom. Right. If we don't actively concern ourselves with those spiritual rhythms, uh, we will find ourselves thinking that we're thriving socially, professionally with our family, while actually little by little we're growing weaker and more fragile spiritually. And as a church, right, as as refuge, it is our desire to help you navigate through the seasons of life while empowering you to follow the Lord, to be a disciple. And that includes this specific type of season coming out of a unique season that for all intents and purposes, right, like very few of us are going to experience again, maybe save some of these kids that are in here right now. And so starting next week, what we're going to do is that we're going to start a string of sermon series, each tackling one of three areas for us. Okay, the first is going to be a sermon series regarding gathering and community. We're really going to be reintroducing the importance of rhythms of community, right, rhythms of gathering together, how important that is. The second series is going to be about discipleship and what it means. Okay, rhythms of discipleship, what that actually, that word literally, I mean, some of us could provide some, some definition, but man, there's so much to it that's important for us to integrate into every second of our lives as we follow Jesus with our life. The third is going to be about evangelism and why that's important, why we're called to it, and, and, and why it's so important for us personally on a spiritual level. Now, hear me. We could just be like, hey, next week we're going to do a series and we're going to just uh, do three weeks on this and then we're going to move on. But, but that's not doing justice to this stuff. Okay, we're a year and a half out from really practicing what it means to gather together and be a part of really like in-person community. We are a year and a half out of really thinking about what discipleship looks like, not just for me personally, but what it looks like collectively as a whole. We're a year and a half out of a lot of us thinking about how can I get someone to know Jesus? Have I even seen anybody that I can invite to know Jesus, right? Like, man, some of us are working through that, and, and we're out of rhythm with a lot of those things. And so we want to reintroduce those rhythms in healthy and, and pretty, um, how do we say it, like, like pretty thorough ways so that we can gradually get back into this thing and, and do it in a healthy, a healthy way. And so, yeah, community and gathering, discipleship, evangelism over the next several weeks, and we're praying this builds uh, some healthy rhythms and anchors us in Christ. Now, today... What I want to do is I want to uh, end our justice uh, time for now uh, by using this as a bit of a transition point into what we're going to be talking about, into those new subjects. I want to introduce an idea that uh, I hope can set the stage and kind of give us some momentum for the talks that we're going to have moving forward. Uh, And today, that subject is that we're going to talk about the city. City. Okay, C-I-T-Y, not the bank. Specifically, we're going to talk about the gospel in the city, how they interact why they're married, why they're joined at the hip. Uh, This reality that God calls us and he places us for the sake of his name, for the sake of justice as well, for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of people in certain places. And he places us most often in cities, in cities. Why? Because where cities are, people are. Okay, where cities are, people are. 
Think about this. On every continent for the last 50 years, there has been a major population shift toward living in a city. Radical changes in the percentage of people on every continent moving into cities. In Africa, the urban populations have gone from 14% to 43% in 2020. In Asia, the urban populations have gone from 17% to 51%, meaning 51% of the people that live on the continent of Asia live in cities. In Europe, 51 to 75 Look at this one. In Latin America, from 41% to 81% of people in Latin America living in cities. And in North America, where we live, from 63% to 84%. 84% of people that live in North America live in the same context that you do in a city. Why is that important? Because if Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, he, he's talking about lost people. And if he's coming to seek and save lost people, then cities would naturally be where he went. Because cities are where people are. And Jesus has come to seek and to save lost people. Yet cities have historically been under-churched. His cities have historically been places where people go, I'm a little bit nervous to go into that context. There's a lot of dynamics, a lot of diversity, uh, some, a lot of uh, economic question marks. And so I'm going to stay on the urban side or maybe the suburban side, even thinking about our own community, right? The, the 78744, as some of you know, and hopefully all of you have, we're about to find out right now, right? This is kind of like a summer home for us. While we, while we find a new location in the 44, in the 78744 area code that we call home. That community, at the time when we were thinking about planting refuge, had only 4.5 churches per 10,000 people. That's the condition of many cities, communities in many cities. Yet God desires for his people to be the hands and feet of God in those cities, in communities, to be shining cities of God built within the very walls of the cities we live in to allow the testimony of his goodness seen through our lives to draw those around us to God's goodness. But to do that, hear me, two things are necessary. The first one, you got to be in a city. We got that one. All right, let's move on to the next one. Okay, the second one is that we have to know what to do when we're in the city. All right, you, you, you can be in the city. Still not know what to do while you're in the city. How to serve, love, care, and build the communities that make up a city. How to show God's goodness and be a part of the change that points others around you toward God's goodness. But hear me, that can still be difficult. It is difficult. It can be difficult in a city like ours, Austin, Texas, where where there seems to be an increasingly hostile attitude toward Christianity and Christian thought. Right, where individual, individualism is, is superior and prioritized over things like community. Right, where, where the pace of life is accelerated because people have things to do and professional lives and money to make and advancement to take on. And it can be even harder once you zone in and you're in communities like ours, like in the 4-4, like in Dove Springs, where social issues on top of all that begin to tear at the fabric of families in societies where systemic injustices keep individuals where they are without allowing for mobile, upward mobility, right? Where, where people feel forgotten and as a consequence oftentimes feel suspicious to hands that are saying, hey, let me help out. What do we do then? 
when all those challenges amount and we still know, hey, we're in the right place, we're where we should be, but it's hard. What do you do? How do you do it? Today, that's what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to touch on a couple of practicals, uh, but really, I want us more to connect to the truth, okay, that unless we know why we're doing this, unless we know why we're doing it, we will never be able to faithfully live out this call that God has given us. Unless we know why, we'll never understand how to keep doing it. And so today, uh, beyond the practical stuff, the main point I want to give you is this, that only through understanding where our own hope lies, only through understanding where our own hope lies, are we empowered to love and serve the places that God places us. Only through understanding where our own hope lies are we empowered to love and serve the places God places us. To help us do this, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29. That's what uh, Jennifer, our our sister, just read. Uh, And to help us uh, understand that text today, we're going to break it down into two sections. The first is the command, and the second is the call. We're going to take a look at the fact that there is a command in this text, but we're also going to take a look at the fact that there's a call in this text as well. And so we're going to go ahead and start and jump in uh, with the the command. Uh, We're going to take a look at Jeremiah uh, 29 verses, uh, I think we're going to do 4, 5, 6, 7. Let's go reread it again just to get us acclimated. Uh, If you would, uh, if you want to read along with us, that's fine. It'll be on the screen as well, okay? Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 says, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and your daughters and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. All right. Now, uh, after reading this, uh, you may not be looking at this text and being like, this is a shocker of a verse. Right? You might be looking at it and be like, that seems pretty on par for how people want to live. I mean, we live in, like, Austin, right? So, like, people like, you know, like... Like caring for homeless people and doing nice stuff and trying to be altruistic, you know, trying to make yourself feel real good. Uh, That's a little wink right there. If you ain't catch that, we'll catch that a little bit later. But um, it's only when you dive a little deeper does one really find the juiciness that's there to be found in a text like this. Okay, you see the prophet Jeremiah, the book that we're writing, he's the writer of this book. In this chapter, sending a letter to people in what's called exile. More like being deported from your homeland. And this took place in a, in, in a season, in a time called the Hebrew exile. This Hebrew exile started around 600 B.C., give or take, and it involved swaths of the Hebrew nobility and upper class, right, being marched over 1,500 miles, relocating from their home in Jerusalem to a foreign city and nation called Babylon. And here uh, in Babylon, they were put into what amounted to basically like Hebrew ghettos ethnic enclaves that were a far cry from the middle to upper class environments that they were used to in Jerusalem. Uh, And while they were still allowed to practice their faith and and to uh, allow to work and, and to live relatively freely, for all intents and purposes, this was a captive people. It was a captive people. And this is where it gets tricky because prophets for years warned the Hebrew people, hey, hey, your idolatry, your disobedience to God is going to lead to exile. If you don't repent and return to God, God's going to exile you. 
And they warned and they warned and they warned, but the people of God continued to disregard and disregard and disregard until, bam, it actually happened. And one of these prophets that was giving all of these warnings was Jeremiah. In fact, chapter 29, where we're reading from today, is actually the first chapter in the entire book that's not just like doom and gloom. The first 28 chapters are basically him being like, hey, you're going to pay. Repent or you're going away. Bars. All right. So what I'm saying is that in those first 29, those first 28 chapters, it was basically just Jeremiah doom and gloomy. And 29 starts this section that begins to introduce some of the most beautiful promises from God to his people that we have in scripture, including everyone's favorite verse. Right. Jeremiah 29, 11, where I know the plans I have for you. I'm sure some of y'all, if not all of you, have it hung up in your wall in your house somewhere. Yet despite that, despite all of those realities, the truth of what the prophets said, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, there were still false prophets saying the exile wasn't going to last long, saying, hey, it'll be over in like two years. Don't worry about it. And this is where Jeremiah, uh, where your man Jeremiah had a little, little something different to say. <laughs> he came in and said, hey, you know what? Uh, let's get comfy. Let's settle in because then it's going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years. There's going to be some of you here that are listening to this letter being read, that will not see home again. That's the reality of what he's saying. And it's here we get this unique set of commands. Okay, because rather than inspiring them, knowing it's going to be 70 years, knowing it's a long haul, rather than saying, hey, okay, this is the plan. I want you to revolt. I want you to start a coup, and I want you to go take over the government. I want you to get out of there. Rather than saying, hey, why don't we just plan a massive form of escape? We can just trickle everyone out, and eventually we'll all be back home. Right, rather than saying, hey, why don't we isolate everybody together, make a little enclave that just puts walls up and prevents the rest of the world from getting in and just wait it out together. He tells them that he wants them to ingrain themselves into the society around them, ingrain themselves into the city that they're in. He tells them to establish, uh, in so many words, the city of God, their community, their people, their customs, their faith, their families in the middle of Babylon. You see, God didn't see exile uh, as this kind of lost people in this vast metropolis as something to, to protect and to isolate and just keep for himself. But rather, he saw this people exiled from their home in foreign lands in this vast city as a weapon, something to be weaponized and sent out on mission. And he encourages them, settle in. And I want you to settle in in three ways. First, I want you to establish a presence in the city. Right, that's the main idea of those first two verses. I want to establish a presence in the city. Uh, he, he does this in, in three ways to establish, right? Get involved in the community. Get involved with me. That's what he means in verse 5 when he says build houses and live in them. In other words, live in the city and take ownership of the place that you're in. Take ownership of your block, of your cul-de-sac, of your neighborhood, of your subdivision, of your apartment complex, of your city council district. Uh, you know, this is extremely practical when you think about it, right? Like, vote. That seems like a crazy suggestion, but it's just like, vote. That's really doing what he's saying to do. Know your neighbors. Study what's happening in the community, right? A, a lot of us, you know, well, let me say like this. This doesn't have to be a huge project. Getting involved in the community doesn't have to be a huge project. Right in Dove Springs, in the 4-4, right now, there's currently a battle that few people know about. It involves something as menacing as it is beloved. Something that fills some people with anger and some people with gladness. Guys, I'm talking about bike lanes. I'm talking about bike lanes. 
Some people love him. Some people hate him. But they definitely got into the 4-4. And hear me. They put up these, uh, these bike lanes on Terry Road. And few people like them. And few people use them. But the people that use them really love them. And so it's a little bit of a controversy. But now the city is talking about taking a lane from one of the m- most congested uh, intersections we have in our community at the intersection of William Cannon and Pleasant Valley, taking one of those lanes away and using it as a bike lane instead. In the intersection, yeah, I already saw somebody like, nah, 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 it ain't happening. Right? Like, like this lane, this, this, this intersection already gets backed up like two miles. That's two lanes. Now it's going to go down to one. And hear me, I'm not telling you how to think about that. Maybe you love bike lanes and you're like, oh, we're going to get them bike lanes. I'm not telling you how you should think about that. What I'm telling you is what you should be thinking about. If you're part of a community like the 4-4, I live in the 4-4. Some of you do as well, right? Like, like these are the things you should be thinking about. Thinking about what's going on in the community because we are a part of a community. That's the nature of what, what he's trying to tell us, getting involved in the community. And the second way to get involved is a natural consequence of the first. Get involved in the economy. If you're involved in your community, you will naturally be involved in, your, in the economy of the community. Right? Look, look at, uh, at verse 5, the second part of that says, plant gardens and eat their produce. Agriculture in this day was still a major economic force. Right now, when we read that, we think like, oh, yeah, like a backyard garden and eat from it. That's not what he's talking about in here, right? Like, agriculture was still a pretty important part of the economy. Okay, like, like a, a, a garden represented presence because you ain't fixing a planted garden and dip out because that's how you're going to eat. Right? Like, like, but it also represented economics because that's how you're going to eat. Right? It might be how others eat. Be mindful is what he's saying of what you do and how it impacts the economic lives of the people around you. Hear me, gentrification is a major idea in this, right? Like, we all want beautiful homes. There's nothing wrong with wanting a beautiful home. But when we don't consider the economy around us and we take without considering if someone else is going to be hurt in the process of taking, that, that's when you start to violate what Jeremiah is saying. We, we can renovate homes, but, but when we renovate homes and make them like a completely different style design as the rest of the community, and, and they're, like, they're like, okay, like, oh, yeah, that's like a mad nice house in the middle of this, like, that kind of looks like the ghetto. So, okay, like, like, now we can start building other houses in this area and do that same thing, right? That inevitably hurts other people. Renovate to your heart's content. I hope the inside of each and every person in this place's house is the most beautiful, immaculate thing you've ever seen. And I hope you're so comfortable in it. But, but oftentimes when we do this type of thing, it, it maybe makes it a little bit harder for other people to get by. Right? No matter what you're doing, whether it's renovating houses, but it can also be shopping locally, supporting local business, supporting businesses that support the community, right? Be involved in the economy of the community. And the third one of getting involved is planting roots. Read verse 6. He simply says, man, find families. Marry your kids off. Let them get married. Right? Let them have a bunch of kids, have grandkids, have all the kids. And this is critical, friends, because by nature, family is a commitment. This is why this is so important, because by nature, family is a commitment. No one starts a family for the moment. Hear me again. No one starts a family for the, no, for the moment. There's no not being a parent, if that makes sense. Ask anybody that's lost a child. There's no not being a parent. Having your children present with you doesn't 
or not present with you. It doesn't make you a parent or not a parent. There's not being someone's child. It's impossible to not be someone's child as someone that's lost a parent. By its very nature, family communicates commitment. It's by nature a commitment to the area, but that's not the only thing. It naturally does. It's naturally selfless. Family is naturally selfless. You can't choose to stay in bed when a baby is crying at 3 in the morning. Trust me, I've tried, and it doesn't happen. It, you cannot pull it off. It's selfless. It's selfless by nature. Godly family also demands dependence, reliance. Kids don't come home in a godly family trying to figure out how to pay bills, how to put food in the fridge. I'm not saying that godly families don't struggle. They do. There may be concerns about where food's going to come from. But in a godly family, the parents don't skate the responsibility onto the children and say, you worry about that. It builds in reliance and responsibility. The family's presence, God's family, the people of God, in the city were meant to, to, to present not just, or to represent not just God's presence, but the character of the presence. It's not just that he wanted families there. It's that families represent exactly what it is God wants the presence of his people to show. This responsibility, this care, this selflessness, this joy, this, this, this giving, this reliance, this dependence. So getting involved in the community by, by getting involved, I mean, establishing a presence by getting involved in the community and the economy by establishing families. And this is really what leads to the second command to seek the well-being or the peace of the city. Right. Seven A says this: um, Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. God desires His people to seek the well-being of Babylon. That's the character of their presence there. Right there to root down, to be present, and their presence is supposed to communicate uh, seeking the well-being of the city. And friends, this is powerful because that word "well-being" that we have up here, that word "well-being," uh, is, is a Hebrew word called shalom. And that word is, is, is more than just like make it all right. Like, yeah, make the city all right. Make it livable. Make it passable. It's more than that. It's to communicate the extent that they're supposed to pursue the well-being of the city. Clifford Green, he's a theologian uh, and a social commentator. He says it like this. More than the absence of conflict and death, this rich term fills out the word community by embracing well-being, contentment, wholeness. Health, prosperity, safety, and rest. This idea, this idea is caring for communities to make, to make them as close to whole as we can on this side of eternity. Caring for communities in a way that gets them as close to whole as we can on this side of eternity. It's making sure that, that the community is cared for and kept and safe and seen. Not ignored. It's cleaning parks and serving schools and mentoring youth and caring for elderly, right? In communities like the 4-4, it's helping uh, maybe reintroduce community members that are getting out of prison, right? It's, it's, it's helping out uh, with people that are hungry and maybe people, people that are homeless. I love how Rich Perez is a pastor in Atlanta, uh, and he puts it like this in his book, uh, Mi Casa, Uptown. He says, God envisioned that his people would not merely exist there, but would also passionately pursue the welfare of Babylon because when it thrives, you will thrive. 
In other words, we aren't merely to take up space until things change or God comes to finally establish his city on earth. We're not called to be residents, but neighbors. We're called to hope deeply, imagine creatively, and take ownership of the places that God puts us. I'm, uh, I'm humbled, right, to be a part of a monthly leadership roundtable in, in Dove Springs. Uh, it's a meeting of community leaders, whether they be church leaders like myself uh, or civic group leaders and maybe nonprofit leaders. Uh, and they, we come together uh, to discuss the affairs of the community and to look out for the community and to invest in the community together. Hear me. I want you to really listen to what I'm saying right now. We don't all agree. When I get on that Zoom call, because it's only been on Zoom, X1, you know, pandemic, uh, it, it, not everybody agrees. There's some people in that group that have deep objections to certain Christian ethics that I hold to. There's some that don't support us sharing our faith. There's some that have been hurt by church and straight up don't like churches. But we can come together still for the purpose of the well-being of 78744. For the purpose of the well-being of Austin. In those places, for that moment, all of their misunderstandings about God and about his goodness and all of their hurts and all their memories of pain associated to the church, for just that brief moment, for that one hour a month, they get to see God's goodness through myself. They get to see God's goodness through Pastor Mike at First Church Austin. You know what I'm saying? I have a point here that I'm fixing to have to skip because of time. But I, if you want to know about, if you're scared about getting families into these, these types of environments, right? Something like the 4-4. Uh, where just yesterday, my, my daughter said hi to the homeless man that knocked on our door and was like, hey, what's up? Is Tim here? He knew there wasn't no Tim there. Right? But right, if, if, if you're concerned about that, Email me. I'd love to show you some of the notes that, that I, I, wrote, I wrote out here. Uh, but with that in mind, seeking the well-being of the city, okay? Seeking it holistically. And the third way that he calls us to settle in is to pray for the city to thrive. Okay, verse uh, 7, the, the second half of it. Pray for the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. I want you to notice something, okay? I want you to notice something. That God desires to build societies where everyone is cared for. From the broken to the healed, from the sick to the healthy, from the most outspoken non-believer to the most faithful follower of Jesus. He didn't say, make your neighborhoods awesome, make your, your enclaves awesome, forget everyone else. Right? That selfishness, that type of, 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 uh, of tribal conduct has no place in God's people. God's people build spaces where everyone thrives. Everyone. From sinners to saints. Because God's common grace, meaning the grace and goodness that he offers to human beings to care for us, to keep us alive, is built on our value as humans, not on our value as Christians. I want you to hear me again. God offers grace and goodness to humans based on our value as humans, not as Christians. And hear me, our goal as a church is to see people come to faith. It's to announce uh, the goodness of God, the, 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 the good news of Jesus, to evangelize. We're, gonna, we're literally going to talk about uh, in a few weeks an evangelism effort we're going to have going on in the month of July. But faith isn't the qualifier of value. 
Faith is not the qualifier of dignity. It's not the qualifier of worth. Christ made his sacrifice when we were all sinners. The value he reveals isn't applied to some. It's applied to all because remember the first sermon that we're all made in God's image. And so we pray for a city that thrives because when all thrive, we thrive. The people of God don't go, oh, you know what, like we take care of ours, but everybody else is going to be like, eh. No, no, no. The, when everyone thrives, that's when we thrive. The goal is to see, for the city to see, a people of God in their midst, in the midst of hurting, broken, tired, suffering people, but are interacting with the body of Christ as he heals and loves and invites to be known and to know the love of God. That's, that's what Jeremiah wants. My only question today as we turn this the other direction is can you do this? Can you do this? Uh, we talked about these three things. It's more like, I don't know, like six things. There's like three sub points and one of the points. But these six things, can you do this? Because it's easy to simply say, yeah, yeah, I got this. You understand, man, I'm good at community service. I like community service a lot. In fact, I got in college off of my merits of community service. You don't know what I am. I, I got me some community service, all right? It's easy to think of it like that. And if you think of it like that, it's easy to brush aside a sermon like this as a simple encouragement to do good. Go out there and do good. Go out there and, and be the change that you want to see. Because it's easy to look at the often comfortable environments that we've built around ourselves, that we've created around ourselves, and say, yeah, I can do what you're talking about here in this easy environment. Oh, I can do it here. I can do it in the easy place. But that's not what God is asking in this text. That's not what God is asking here. Because remember, this isn't a people moving to a new neighborhood. This is a people seeking the welfare of the very city that is now their prison. This is a people that has marched 1,500 miles having witnessed the atrocities of war, knowing what it looks like to look your captor in the face, and now to know I am to seek the welfare of that very captor. This isn't going to a friendly PTA meeting. This is faithfully going to your job where there are no Christians reaching out to them, seeing if you can pray for them, inviting them to church, seeing their faces, hearing their ridicule, then sacrificing for them when they need someone to cover their shift. That's what this is. This is caring and praying for the same homeless person day in and day out, giving him or her clothes, food, praying for them, understanding that the drug addiction, the poor choices, the mental illness will probably win later that day and doing it anyway. This is working for a school where kids don't care about you. They don't hardly care about themselves. Where you're ridiculed by parents for wanting children to do better, yet still finding an opportunity with just one child to do what you wish you could do for each one. This is marching against things like police brutality. 
caring for communities of color while still serving police officers, thanking them for their service, knowing that each one of them ain't, ain't like all the gruesome videos that we see. Right? This is giving of yourself. This is giving of yourself, knowing, knowing that what you're going to get back isn't nearly what you're going to put in. If you get anything back at all, and doing it anyway. So now my question is, can you do that? But your question might be, how could God ask me for that? How could God ask that of me? How could God ask that of them? How could God ask that of us? Especially when we may already be hurting, we may already be hobbled. How could he ask? Because, friend, hear me. Because the command of this text may be to serve in moments when it's hard. But the call of the text is to trust in the Lord when there's nothing in your life that you can trust in. To hope in the Lord when everything around you feels hopeless. To place your hope in him that he has more for you. That if you don't get what you want and what your heart desires here, then he will give it to you in eternity. That when everything else in your life falls apart, that he's still your portion. That he's still enough. That his love is enough. That his affection is enough. That his forgiveness is enough. To hope in him. When everything else feels hopeless, to look at him and go, you're sufficient for me. And everything I lack in you I have, whether now or tomorrow. You see, the command was to serve, but the cause to hope, to hope in him. And hear me, friends, you still may be asking, well, how how can we hope in God for those that may be hurting us, but also hope in God while we ourselves are hurting? How? How do I hope in God and put my hope in him when, when there's people around me hurting me and when I'm hurting? Because the gospel is the hope of the helpless, friend. But hear me, it's also the hope of the harmful. The gospel is the hope of the helpless, but it's also the hope of the harmful. Because God knew when he sent Israel into Babylon that he was also going to send his son. And his son was going to redeem his people. And he was going to forgive their oppressors. One and the same. No distinction and no difference. You see, Jesus is the ultimate example of seeking the well-being of a city. Seeking the well-being of a world. Because when Christ enters the world, he ingrains himself into the fabric of the way we live. He takes on our very flesh. He succumbs to our power structures. He enters into the hierarchies of what we live in into the homes of the rich and the homes of the poor. And he took the cross so that the worst of every group that he interacted with could be called God. You see, he allowed oppression to overtake him so that the oppressed could be free. Hear me, if you were oppressed today, if you feel beat down today, you're free. He's made a way. But he also took the cross So that those who were oppressing, the oppressors, could now be forgiven as well. And so if you don't know if you're the oppressed, if you feel more like the oppressor, if you turn a blind eye when something is hard, 
when you look the other way when people are in need, if you actively take advantage when you see the opportunity, the gospel is still for you. It's for the helpless and it's for the harmful. The gospel is the hope of every soul, the lost, no matter where they are. And here's the thing, friend. Today, if you have your feeling, talk it, Charlotte, let's go. If you have, if you are looking at yourself and thinking, I'm one or the other, let me remind, let me remind you, you all the time are both. No matter if in the morning you are the oppressed and in the evening you are the oppressor. No matter if in the morning you're the oppressor and in the evening you're the oppressed. The gospel is the hope of the helpless and the hope of the harmful. And no matter what time of day it is, no matter what camp you happen to be in that moment, you have the grace of God that is forgiven, redeemed, and set you free. All right, look, clap. I like that. All right. Let's get excited about God, right? The gospel's worth getting pumped up about. You see, no matter which camp you're in, you receive that grace because of what Jesus did for both the hopeless, the, the helpless and for the harmful. But hear me, it's not just so that you can keep it there, right? He's forgiven so that he can send us back out. He forgives so that he can send us back to those that are helpless. He can send, it, he can send us back to those that are harmful. Right, with that beautiful news that you have hope, friend. You have hope no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. You have hope in this Jesus. And so we can't sit on that. We don't sit on it. Today, friends, we're called to find our hope in Christ. When things are hard, when your children are hard, when your relationships are hard, when your your job is hard, when you've been reaching out to somebody and it's hard, when you are longing for someone to come back, it's hard, right? When you're trying to love on somebody, you wish they would go away, it's hard, right? Like no matter what season you find yourself in, we are called because of the great work that Jesus has done to place our hope in this God, to anchor our hope in him and to fight for the sake of those around us, but to fight for the sake of our communities, our cities, right? This is what we're called to do. Through that grace and understanding where our hope is, we are empowered to go out and establish a presence. Right? Getting involved in the community, getting involved in the economy, planting families down because we know where our hope lies. We're able to seek the well-being of our cities, of our community, of your community. Don't just think of the 4-4, think of where you live. Right? That's what we're able to do. And hear me, I want this to, again, as we close up today... Uh, those are your practicals, right? The whole sermon was basically practical advice. So just go back and listen to that. You want your take-homes. All right. But uh, as we end today, I want this to serve as a bit of a foundation, right? A foundation that as we look to say, God, how do you want us to gather again? How do you want us to, to be in discipleship again? How do you want us to be these, these, these um, agents of transformation in our jobs and in our city and in our communities, Right? Return back to this truth that your hope does not lie in any one of those things, but lies in the grace of our great king whose sacrifice freed and uplifted those who were oppressed and, and forgave those that were oppressed. Remind yourself of that this week as you go out to try and uh, seek the well-being of our city. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for, um, man, just 
the encouragement that it is to my own life, the challenge that it is to my own life. Father, let us look upon these moments knowing that what we're called to in these words, in these 30 or 40 minutes here, is not easy. It's not meant to be. It's meant to draw us back into reliance upon you. It's to help us see our deep need for the one that entered into the fray of our own world in order to save us. That's our aim today. Let us hear this and not just think about what we can do, but rather let us worship you for what you've done. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 